This is Whitehawk, one of the three big estates in the hills and hollows of East Brighton on the south coast. Tucked between the South Downs and the Sea to the South, it's where I grew up in a working class family in the 1980s. There was lots to love about being a kid here. The sea views, green space, playing out, quiet roads. All of my family lived close by and my school was a walk away. But I was failed miserably by the education I got here. Me and thousands of kids like me, right up to the present day. Whitehawk is ranked in the top 10% most disadvantaged areas in England. And so it has high rates of poverty and people in low paid, low status and often precarious work. Many people are unable to work due to illness and disability or other barriers. A recent Freedom of Information request revealed that only 37% of kids from the council estates of Whitehawk, Manor Farm and Bristol Estate in East Brighton achieved basic GCSE grades, compared with 69% of kids in the rest of the city. I want to find out why. This is Class Divide, a podcast about educational inequality, not just in East Brighton, but across the UK. I'm Curtis James, an ethnographic photographer, researcher and filmmaker. I'm part of a campaign group trying to make education fairer in the city of Brighton and Hove. And this podcast series is my way of trying to understand why the experience of education and the outcomes for children in the community I come from are so different to kids in other neighbourhoods in Brighton and Hove. I'll be uncovering the roots of the UK's education segregation and subsequent attainment gap. I'll be hearing about the consequences this has for some of our country's poorest communities. And I'll be asking, is there a better way? I don't think it's being too combative to say that if you're cold or you're hungry, you're going to find it very difficult to learn. And yet this is the reality for hundreds of thousands of children in the UK. It's instilling these views into you as a youngster that the system doesn't want you there or doesn't want to support you or wants to get rid of you as quickly as possible. I actually strongly believe it's a form of educational cruelty. If anything, we're going back to something that more resembles class polarised schooling in the 19th century than at any other time over the last 50 years. It's like saying your kids don't deserve that education or your kids don't deserve to be, I don't know, in some top-end job, some huge business person. But why not? Just because of where they come from. It is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85, while about 2% have an IQ above 130. And the harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top. I don't believe that economic equality is possible. Indeed, some measure of inequality is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses and so on. That is a valuable spur to economic activity. The then Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, did a lot of backtracking after this speech in 2013, but it betrayed a belief that felt a reality to me growing up, that the working class 
or poor people are too stupid to succeed. We'll never get to sit in a boardroom, so what's the point bothering with us? People in poverty have no one to blame but themselves, goes the narrative. An exceptional rags-to-riches stories proves that success is available to anyone willing to work hard enough for it. It's all nonsense. Education is not a privilege. It's a right for all children to achieve their fullest potential, regardless of where they grow up. Episode 1. The Early Years We're standing on the pitches, sort of in the heart of Whitehall, really, and um, you know, whenever I, I come here, I just there's so many memories that sort of flood back to me. The disco that used to happen. Tell me about your memories of a disco. So the Thursday night disco was the event of the week. When I was a kid, it was run by PC Button and his wife, who I don't know what she was called, but she was a lovely woman. I'm with Carly Goldsmith. Like me, she grew up in Whitehawk. get down there early you'd meet all your mates um you'd have you know begged borrowed or stolen some money from your mum for tip-top drinks and jubblies and the various things that they would sell behind the tuck shop so it was a proper disco with lights and a dj and the music was great the thing that always was amazing about it was like the boys would dance the girls would dance everybody just would have a really, really good time. Um, and the adults would just sort of let us have that space. I mean, if I think about all of the street games, all of the things that we would play, like my favourite man hunts, we'd run all around the state, we'd split into two teams and then one team would have a head start and then the other team would chase them. And there was like my roller boots. I don't think I took my roller boots off for about four years. We just spent hours and hours and hours outside We were kind of left alone to kind of do a lot of that stuff ourselves. And I think it was a really, really important part of of growing up. Um, And I don't think I've ever felt quite so free as what I felt in the 80s running around this estate. As we were talking about life here nearly 40 years ago, we could hear the current cohort of kids from the local primary school coming out for their break time. You hear them having fun in the playground... And you know that many of them are achieving in school and doing really well in school and are happy in school, but you know that some of them aren't and you know that even those who are happy in school now, you hope that they'll be happy in school for the rest of their school career and you hope that they'll have the opportunities that other kids in other parts of the city have. But that's not the case. The class-divide freedom of information request I mentioned right at the start of the show revealed that as well as the gap in GCSE attainment, children in our community are twice as likely to be excluded and three times more likely to end up outside mainstream school than the city average. The numbers going to sixth form colleges and universities are tiny. This is how Hannah Albrook, Deputy Council Leader and Chair of the Children, Young People and Skills Committee, responded to those facts in March 2021. It's clear to me that the outcomes for young people in the communities of Whitehawk, Manor Farm and the Bristol Estates have for too long been left unaddressed or that attempts to address them haven't tackled the issue. We must review the actions we've taken previously so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. All councillors should be willing to apologise for any part we have played in this. For my part, I say to your community and others in the city, I'm sorry. 
So how did we get here? This story is much bigger than issues with the local authority. We're dealing with structural, systemic issues, and as you'll hear later in the series, part of a shadow culture that has come to define all of us. When I was growing up, most children went to two primary schools that fed into a large secondary on the estate. The primary schools are still there, but the secondary school was closed in 2005, something you'll hear about later in the series. I left that secondary school with an envelope containing the only exam I've ever passed, a C in drama. And I've never forgotten the last words my teacher said to me on my last day at Stanley Deason. He told me, I knew you'd never amount to anything, Mr. James. I didn't know it at the time, but those words were both a dagger to my sense of self, but also made me determined to prove him wrong. I want to be clear, I'm not an expert in education, but people like Carly and me have lived this, and over the last three years, I've been speaking to people with lived and learned experience to paint a picture of educational inequality and its impact. You're here in this series just what a massive, life-changing difference a good education can make to kids. This story belongs to all of us. We all play our part, to a greater or lesser degree, in fueling these inequalities. This means you may hear things in this series that make you feel uncomfortable, feelings that you might want to push away. I'm well aware there are no easy answers to any of this. Many of the things have become normalised and are hiding in plain sight, meaning we are unwittingly and unconsciously feeding the very things that are making matters worse. But keep listening, as it's going to take all of us to make this right. It takes a city to educate its children, all of its children. Just lively is what I remember of all of you lot at school. Just kind of quite busy, quite a lot of energy, quite active. Yeah, that's what she was, the bright one. We all had uh, to look up to Carly, we all had to go in her tracks. We're at home with Carly, her brothers and her mum, who still live in the area. Early years and junior school is where most of us have our first taste of learning with others. So I went to Whitehall Infants and Juniors. And I remember having a really nice class and like really liking my classmates and the teachers being nice to us. I mean, this is in infant school, I guess, and in junior school. And we had a really great teacher called Debbie Wallace who was newly qualified. And it felt to us that... She absolutely threw herself into her job. I still remember to this day this project we did on the 50s and 60s. She'd done the whole wall in like this kind of jukebox with a girl and a guy, like teddy boys and kind of, you know, we had school plays and we did nativities. For me, primary school was a really positive experience and I really enjoyed it. I think that came right from when she was little. That's Carly's mum, Debbie. Because I had her so young, I still lived at home with my parents and my brothers and sisters and stuff. So there was always someone there, always someone reading to her, teaching her something, playing with her. You know, it was constant. So when she went to school, she was used to learning. I remember Lisa buying me a book, a Winnie the Pooh book, with my name in it, and I must have been about three or four, and that's probably one of my earliest memories. Yeah, see, I couldn't get, I could never ever I get I remember that Lisa there. teaching me how to do my shoelaces up. <laughs> <laughs> Take a bunch of kids, 
Carly, her brothers, me and mine. We all start off the same, but we won't end up the same. Carly didn't know it at the time, but the fact her family were always reading to her, as the eldest child, gave her a vital head start. Here's Thomas McMorrin, head teacher at City Academy Whitehawk. The importance of a language-rich home can't be understated. The baseline that we take in all schools assesses children's ability to take on language. So where that can't be done in the home in those formative years, you know, the kind of before the big rewiring of the brain at three years old around that developmental stage, the onus then really falls onto the school to make sure that it's a language rich environment. Supporting families to do that is massive. So what about if that's not in the home or what if that's not happening before school? had our son and the world kind of was turned on its head. When he was born, we were given a lovely book bag that had some cool kind of stimulating black and white images in it. And then when he went to his first helpers to visit, we got a book bag with some other books in it. That's absolutely fine and really great to be received. But did anyone sit us down and say, hey, this is how you might read this with your child? No, no, they didn't. And now that early intervention, and it's not even early intervention, it's early provision, isn't it? Intervention is something you do additionally if there's a problem. It should be provision, not intervention. The vocabulary gap for school starters is widely studied because of the detrimental impact it can have on a trajectory for a learner. Even access to a nursery place makes a difference. Professor Diane Ray is a Cambridge academic researcher and higher education teacher. She comes from a working class background and grew up on a large council estate. Her book, Miss Education, explores the relationship between class and education. We have an extremely segregated system from nursery onwards now. Just the mere fact that good nursery education increasingly costs an enormous amount of money means that it's, it's becoming the preserve of more affluent families. They have nursery education. And what the working classes are often left with is childcare. These are the seeds of what's called the attainment gap, the difference between what kids from disadvantaged backgrounds achieve compared with their better-off peers. According to a new report based on research carried out for the Institute for Fiscal Studies and funded by the Nuffield Foundation, the attainment gap is just as large now as it was 20 years ago. Fewer than half of disadvantaged children, these are pupils who have been eligible for free school meals at any point over the last six years, reached expected levels of attainment at the end of primary school, compared with nearly 70% of their better-off peers. The study found that the same children start school behind their better-off peers. A lot of working-class parents don't have the time to support things like reading or homework because of their own busy lives and work. Maybe they don't realise how important it is, or they had a bad experience of school themselves. Maybe they can't read so can't support their child with the things the school system expects or needs them to do. The problems are generational. Darren Snow was born and bred in Whitehawk and went to school here. I never had a conversation with my mum and dad about education. It was like, if you got to school, then that was the job done. The school would then do something while you was there for that day. And then you'd come home and it'd be back to the responsibility of the parents to, to feed you and, you know, make sure you're in on time. I 
I was quite swatty, <laughs> quite nerd, you know, swatty rather than nerdy. I've always really liked learning and it's just something even now that I really love. Carly continued to do well at school because she fitted neatly into a very narrow ideal learner slot. Her postcode disadvantage was overcome in part by being, as she calls herself, a swat. So what happens if you haven't been to nursery and you don't have the kind of parental or family support the school system expects or needs? Well, some children start school at a massive disadvantage in terms of being one of those ideal learners, and this is measured very early on. Here's Diane Ray again. I think there's sort of stark class differences from the phonics test onwards. But the phonics test has meant that increasing numbers of primary school teachers are setting children on the basis of a very spurious test in phonics at age five. Ultimately, you have to assess children's primary needs. Here's head teacher Thomas McMorran talking about the work they do with some of their younger children at City Academy Whitehawk to get children classroom ready. It would be easy to shoehorn them into something that's not yet right for them. What we do is we take a profile of children coming out of reception ready for key stage one, where the curriculum is much more academic, to work out who would benefit most from our nurture provision. So usually that's anywhere between kind of six, eight, ten children who will not go to their year one base in the morning for maths and English. They'll go to nurture and have a really, really superb nurture curriculum that gets them classroom ready. Diane Ray has a different take on the extra support being offered to children in schools across the country. Extra support for children who need it is really important. But often that additional help is part of a powerful labelling process. And although the teachers often don't admit to it, the children are very aware that they're being labelled and differentiated according to so-called school readiness. Even very young children are aware of ranking and where they're positioned academically. I mean, just before COVID, I went into primary schools in London and I talked to six and seven-year-olds who could give me a very accurate ranking of everybody in their class according to how the teacher saw their ability level being seen to be ranked towards the bottom of the classroom can lead to real feelings of inadequacy. But of course, it also impacts on possibilities and opportunities, writing off children's potential before they've even had a chance to get started as learners. Dr Sarah Leaney from the University of Brighton researches the lives of people on council estates and the formation of classed identities. One of my concerns is that When the research says, oh, well, working class kids have a lack of fit between their experiences so far and then what's expected at school, it kind of positions their childhood as having lacked in some way. And I don't think that's the case. And that's not what I found through my research at all. I think that children's everyday lives on council estates are full of many of the things that we value in terms of children's lives, full of friendships, full of support and those types of things. But they are also often experiencing less access to resources. And I think that is a major problem and that schools don't recognise. 
yesterday my grandson was sick and couldn't go to nursery and we had him and we he poorly boy not not feeling his usual boisterous self we read books he's one that's Celia Greenwood, one of the co-founders of the WAC Arts Organisation, which she set up in London while teaching in the 1970s. And at a certain point, I said, OK, you read to me. And he turned the pages and said, Grandma Bear and Grandpa Bear were tired. Turn the page, Grandma Bear and Grandpa Bear went to bed. She's a strong believer that every child turns up at school with rich experiences. He already knows what a book is and he already knows it tells a story and there are children who arrive in school who have never had those experiences. But they've also had other experiences. They've had other rich experiences. They've seen different things. They understand different things. They've possibly had visitors from the country of their parents or their grandparents' origin and heard stories about different cultures. They've eaten different kinds of food. And we never make anything of their experiences. We only identify the experiences that we think they should have had, but they haven't had. And because we reject the experiences and the expertise that they come with, they already feel that school isn't the place for them or a place where they will succeed. Because we really remind them of what they don't have without celebrating what they do have. Dr Sarah Leaney. And especially that's a problem when kids go into schools and then get set by ability really quickly without an acknowledgement that what we're looking for or what we're assuming ability to be really is just measuring how much access to educational resources in quite a limited sense you've had as a child. It's not that teachers are unaware of these inequalities, but they don't have the resources to actually work with young people to support them. Sarah talks about limited educational resources being an issue. And when paired with all the other challenges faced by parents in poorer communities, is it a surprise the attainment gap is so wide? Mary Balstead, Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union, agrees that the disadvantage begins before children even reach the school gates, but looks to a wider culprit beyond a parent's ability to create school-ready students. The Education Policy Institute in 2016 calculated that 40% of the damage done to a child's education attainment is set in stone before they start school. And it's a result of poor housing, poor diet, parents who are very stressed, who may be working for their poverty, who have less time and probably less ability to support their child's language development, learning development through reading, etc., etc. You know, if 40% of the damage is done before children start school, that's a massive gap to make up. It's impossible, really, to do that. These are not small numbers. A third of the school's intake will be poor. We ask teachers every year, what does that mean in respect of their learning? They talk about children coming to school hungry, children and young people coming to school cold, having not slept properly because they don't have proper beds. There's a teacher in Leeds who has set up a charity to give children mattresses and beds because they were sleeping in the bath or they couldn't sleep in their bed because of bed bugs. If we really want to close the education attainment gap, we've got to decrease the number of children living in poverty because... The fewer of those children living below the poverty line means that schools are able to target their efforts in a more focused way on the children who are remaining in poverty. I don't think it's being too combative to say that if you're cold or you're hungry, you're going to find it very difficult to learn. And yet 
this is the reality for hundreds of thousands of children in the UK. Mary told me children living in poverty had increased by over half a million between 2011 and 2019 nationally. Recent Office for National Statistics data shows that 52.1% of households in Brighton were deprived, pretty much in line with the average across England and Wales. But Whitehawk has the highest deprivation rates in the city, with a massive 72% of households facing hardships not of their own making. Mary again. Because at the same time, school funding decreased over that period by 9% in real terms. It won't recover to 2010 levels until 2025. Whilst the government boosted education spending last year, inflation and teacher pay rises of at least 5% has led the Institute for Fiscal Studies to forecast schools will still have less money in 2025 than 15 years earlier. You've got a toxic combination of significant decline in school funding and a significant, very significant increase in child poverty. So schools and teachers and support staff observed this increase, but also observed that buildings are crumbling, they're finding it very difficult to get staff. And what teachers do in that respect is out of their own money buy breakfast or buy clothes. And what of the government's flagship levelling up policy that promises... A new school's funding formula in England, ending the previous postcode lottery, and an extra £4 billion for schools in England next year, rising to £4.7 billion in 2024-25. Here's Diane Ray again. I wanted to say to you, what levelling up? You know, it's all rhetoric and no realisation. It's yet another magician's sleight of hand. They think if they can talk about it in some sort of magical way, we'll believe it's happening. And yet, what all we're getting really is levelling down. You go back to my community and it's in a much worse state than when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. You know, they're not just sort of less economic resources, but also despair and a sense of hopelessness and apathy because nothing they've tried to do has really worked. If you don't, as a society, look after the basics, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, then it is only going to be the most exceptional poor children who are either exceptionally lucky or exceptionally able who escape the conditions of their poverty. Now, we don't expect middle-class children to be exceptionally able or exceptionally lucky, but that's what we require of our poorest children. And what happens if you're at the sharp edge of that toxic combination? Dr Sarah Bragg is a lecturer in the Sociology of Education at University College London. There's a lot of evidence that learners from disadvantaged backgrounds often develop quite early on negative self-perceptions, feelings of inferiority, inadequacy, disengagement and alienation from school curricula and teaching practices. And we shouldn't underestimate these contributors to attainment. This is something Darren Snow, who grew up in Whitehawk, echoes. It kind of makes you anti the system. And at the time, you don't see yourself being anti the system, but it's instilling these views into you as a youngster that the system 
doesn't want you there or doesn't want to support you or wants to get rid of you as quickly as possible. When it comes to education, you could say that it tries to avoid it. So examples where parents don't go to parents' evenings, kids don't go to after-school clubs, kids are missing lessons, um, missing whole days, whatever it is. So it's about getting through it but trying to get through it with a, interacting with as little as possible of it. This alienation is highlighted in a recent study by the British Psychological Society. It found that there was a stereotype threat in schools where children worry that their behaviour will confirm others' negative expectations about people like them, inducing anxiety and interfering with learning, reducing performance and increasing disengagement with education. Carly Goldsmith was a bright kid who, because of her early experience of being read to and her natural appetite to learn, was building a foundation for successful learning at school. But her mum was worried what would happen when she went to secondary school. The main option was the same school she'd left at 16 without any qualifications. By absolute kind of chance and accident, I had a friend whose parents ran the newsagents in Whitehawk. So they were kind of like upper working class, lower middle class with sort of aspirations. She told me one day that her parents were making her go and do an exam at the Brighton Hope High School. It's basically a a girls' day school, private day school in Brighton. And that she said to her mum that she, she refused to go through the process by herself, but that she would do it if I could do it with her. At the time, the school had to put you forward for the exam. And I guess what was interesting to me was that Clearly, Tracy thought I could do that exam (laughs) and and have a decent shot at getting in. But my teachers didn't. And I don't know whether they just never expected kids like us to end up at places like that. Or whether they just didn't know that it was a thing. You know, whether it was was an actual opportunity or a possibility. My mum went down and spoke to my teacher, Miss Wallace. I remember that. And the school agreed that they would put me in for the exam and support the applications. My mum made the application. And then I went through the the process. And what I later found out was the assisted places scheme. So Maggie Thatcher paid for some kids from estates like mine to have a private education. Margaret Thatcher introduced the assisted places scheme in 1979. It was often framed as an attempt to rescue bright children from working-class families and disadvantaged communities, but it was abolished by New Labour because its benefits were inconclusive. Some research showed working-class kids on assisted places actually did worse in the elite environment of a private school and were more likely to drop out. Meanwhile, it sent a clear message that state schools were not the places for bright kids to succeed. For Carly, Experiencing these two very different worlds as she applied for her place, age 11, showed her what school was like for other children and how different it was from her own experience. I remember going to the high school for the first time before going through this kind of process of a number of exams and and interviews and stuff like that. And I remember just looking at the school and and just everything that it kind of had to offer. And also where the girls were at that I was competing against. In terms of the things that they'd learned at school, it was, seemed just enormous in comparison to what I had done. 
you know, they'd done languages and I didn't know what a tutor was or I'd had no kind of additional help or support going through this process. And I just remember feeling at the time that my experiences of school had been so different and that I was clearly behind. Because I remember feeling very excited about learning and really enjoying the learning that I'd done. But I wouldn't have said we were particularly, like, pushed. I'd done quite a lot of colouring in. (laughs) And that sounds awful, but... And maybe that's what primary school's for, colouring in. We've heard about the impact of a lack of early year support. We've heard about poverty and what that can do to a child's success. We've also heard about funding cuts in the state school system and the lack of aspiration in the system for children from certain backgrounds. But where does this educational inequality and segregation stem from? Why does it feel legitimate that we have top, middle and bottom sets in schools? And why is it labelled that way? Why is it discussed that way? Why does that feel okay? To answer that, says Dr Chris Bagley, educational psychologist and ex-teacher, we have to look back into ancient history and a deeply ingrained caste system. What Chris calls the myth of three. If you go back through history up to 4,000 years, right back to ancient Samaria in the Babylonian code of Hammurabi, you can see on stone tablets the idea that human beings are divisible into three castes. And if you come forward from there, what you notice is the way Plato describes human beings as being gold, silver or iron. And he describes the philosopher kings being at the top, those who are naturally and innately born with reason. And if you think about the echoes of that in the Victorian era and even today, it's pretty prominent. And then you have the silver, who are like the auxiliaries, full of energy and spirit. So those two things map beautifully onto the 19th century aristocracy and bourgeoisie. And then you have people below that, the iron or the bronze, who have lustful appetites and are almost described in bestial, animalistic terms. And that maps beautifully onto the working class, doesn't it, in the 19th century. The 20th century saw the beginning of poor people advocating for education for all. But the idea that people were born into a class persisted. Author, broadcaster and campaigner Darren McGarvey believes it's in the interest of the economic system to keep the labouring classes in their place. From the inception of universal education, it was understood that the working classes would forego the privileges of a liberal education, as Woodrow Wilson put it, with respect to the American situation, and they would instead fit themselves to particular arduous tasks. And so universal education, while obviously still a great advance in terms of of social equality generally, the purpose was to, to, to drive the industrial juggernaut with a kind of literate workforce. And so the educational attainment gap, as it's often referred to in the UK context, really just reflects the two-tier education system. So basically, the biggest determinants of a child's academic achievement will be the wealth of their parents, the education of their parents, and their postcode. The income gap between the top cornflakes and the bottom cornflakes is getting wider than ever. And I stress, I don't believe that economic equality is possible. Indeed, some measure of inequality is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses and so on. That is a 
valuable spur to economic activity. Many people in the UK believe we don't even have a class system anymore. I think we do. But a caste system runs much deeper, something Chris connects to the concept of shadow cultures. So this is an absolutely fixed construct in our society. And what that does, and it sits within us, and I, that's why I call them shadow cultures, is that we're not necessarily aware of them. And teachers and policymakers and young people themselves internalise these ideas. And it plays out in the classroom from a very early age with children divided, labelled and separated into cute-sounding groups. So you get young people who are separated into giraffes, pandas and, and bears in year one because the idea is that you can div devise people into castes throughout their school careers and this is accelerated under this government. So that's one very clear reason why people are able to justify in their minds, I think, segregating some young people off, excluding others, essentially saying that we can't meet this child's needs in the kind of language that you hear often directed at almost exclusively poor, looked after, young people living in very vulnerable or deprived environment. Low expectations and aspirations compared to more affluent parts of Brighton is something Whitehawk resident Sandy has to deal with. She told me... Your kids don't deserve that education or your kids don't deserve to be, I don't know, in some top-end job, some huge business person. But why not? just because of where they come from. My eldest son, he went through primary school here, then he went on to college to um, do music production, and then he went to university. His mental capacity is just the same as someone from Hove. It doesn't make them any different. If it's not a, a lack of aspiration, you know, just talking about the sort of class divide campaign more generally and the, the attainment gap that we've, we've seen in the data, what is causing it? What do you think is causing it? It is just that the lower class and the fact that we are not important because I guess they think that, you know, we don't strive. In the next episode, we'll spend time in Whitehawk, learn about its history, some of the people, and how the place has been stigmatised and how this is happening in similar communities across the country. We'll also hear what happens to Carly, then an 11-year-old girl from the estate who was about to find out her fate. We left her applying for an assisted place at a local private school. It was a Saturday morning. I was in bed, in my bedroom, probably staring at the balloon wallpaper and all of the posters that I had on my wall. I heard my mum coming upstairs and she came to my door and she said, it looks like the letter's arrived. She hadn't opened it, so she didn't know what the outcome was. Does she get in? The contents of that envelope could change the rest of her life. It could open doors that remain stubbornly closed to the kids around her. Through the rest of this series, we'll follow what happens to Carly and her brothers. They teach us. Core episodes will be released every other week, and on the weeks in between, I'll be getting together with Carly Goldsmith to talk about some of the things that came up in the most recent episode. So make sure you're subscribed on your podcast app to access that. And if you're about to hit that subscribe button, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps spread the word. 
Class Divide was written and produced by me, Curtis James. The executive producer is Eve Streeter. Location recording, sound design, post-production and mixing is by Simon James, with editorial support by Carly Goldsmith. Music in this episode was kindly donated by Olivier Aleri, Marja Newt, Rum, Neil Hale, Salvatore Mercatante, Polypores, Minor Pieces, Shida Shahibi, Max de Wardner, Simon James, Rutka Hodemakers, Toy Drum, and The Official Body. The series was funded by necessity, and if you'd like to support the Class Divide campaign, follow at Divide Class on Twitter and Instagram, or visit the website classdivide.co.uk. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's taken part. This series couldn't have happened without many people putting their trust in me to tell these important stories. There are also people who shared their stories with me and whose voices haven't ended up in the series. Many of the things those people share with me are definitely here as ideas and inspiration. I also need to thank The Crew Club, Daniel Nathan, Alex at Fat Cat Records, Colin at Castles in Space and Jimmy Berlianto for their help and support. Please help spread the word by subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a rating and review. Until next time, I'll see you next week.